My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our show will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, it is my pleasure to welcome Terence Beckett onto the programme. Terence, very warm welcome to yourself. Hi, Scott. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure welcoming you on, Terence. And uh, just for the listeners that may not be uh, familiar with him, he's very well versed in the built environment and the realms of sustainability. He's founder director of Susplan Limited, um, which is a non-profit nationwide sustainability verification service for local planning authorities, as well as working with uh, Health Air Technology Limited as chief technical director. And that specializes in providing innovative, pure, safe and healthy air cleansing solutions. So quite well versed in the industry, Terence, I think it's fair to say. But um, I just like to get a little bit more of an idea before we move on as to sort of how you kind of got into the industry and sort of did you know that this was always going to be the uh, the pathway for you? Um, well, actually, Scott, no. Um, I was always in kind of retail, uh, senior management retail, immediately prior to becoming uh, sustainability focused. Uh, I was national training manager for multi York Furniture and uh, got made redundant in 2008. And just by chance happened to get, because I'd done training, into the building research establishment on the training side um, and having to learn BREAM, the environmental assessment method for buildings, mm. from scratch. Uh, so that was, I was age 38 at that point, uh, and I discovered I had a photographic memory and managed to uh, learn five BREAM manuals in six weeks, each one 500 pages and A4. Um, and I was delivering training and, and got into sustainability that way and was able then through my skill base of training and also with the sales side of things to actually move up through BRE and become more and more technical. Yeah, fantastic. And would you say that this sort of really changed the way that you sort of saw the uh, the sustainability industry and then moved you more into those kind of technical positions? Yeah, I would. I mean, I'd say it was broader than that for me. It was a bit of an epiphany. Obviously, you're always working for companies where you're earning money for somebody else uh, is fine, but it's somewhat unrewarding, really, from my perspective. And then having worked for BRE, it opened my eyes, which was a not-for-profit business, essentially, um, opening my eyes to an organization that worked for the greater good and put a great part of its net profits into research and um uh, and supporting the new generation of students coming through was a real eye-opener for me. And it kind of made me decide that whatever I did post-BRE, I was always going to have that social element to the businesses that I ran. Yeah, and I guess sort of Susplan came out of that, didn't it? It was born out of that desire to sort of do something different and essentially be purpose-driven and uh, in the current business environment um, that's out there. I mean, we're hearing a lot more of the importance of the uh, the why and uh, why you're obviously going and doing the things that you're doing. And I think that's something uh, that's fair to say that you've really taken on board. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, thank you. I mean, a, a, a large part of my role at BRE was representing the, the standard, the environmental standard around the world. Uh, on all the continents, both in person and online. Um, so I really felt I had a good sphere of influence in countries and businesses to be able to become more sustainable. And of course, when you leave the Coca-Cola, if you like, of the sustainability world in Breen, uh, your sphere of influence shrinks quite dramatically. So you have to repurpose yourself to be able to do that. Um, so initially, I became a local councillor in East Hertfordshire to be able to interact uh, with the local um the local residents, but also to inform the sustainability agenda within East Hearts, within planning, 
Uh, and all of my work ever since then as a consultant originally was only working for businesses that were prepared to give back. And it's important, isn't it, to help improve accessibility to sustainability in that sense? Because when we think about certainly planning and the uh, the built environment, so we're hearing a lot of noise at the moment, aren't we, about how sort of construction has a lot of carbon embedded into um, its processes. It is one of the largest emitting industries. And um, obviously, it's important, therefore, that you know, there's a lot of awareness about um, how both existing buildings and also new build and refurbishment projects essentially are going to sort of contribute to um, sort of emissions and how we can tackle that if we are eventually to uh, to get to net zero. Uh, yeah, it's quite a contentious area for me mm. uh, in so far as I think um, net zero is a buzzword. I honestly don't believe in the current infrastructure that we have in this country or in the world uh, and the way our power is delivered that we could ever actually reach net zero. It doesn't mean we shouldn't improve. It doesn't mean we shouldn't get better and we shouldn't aim for net zero because it's a good good goal to have, but mm. just the realisation that when we don't get there, there's no point in being disappointed. I think net zero is something that's been banded about by academics and governments and it is controversial, but with somebody with nearly 15 years coalface uh, experience, um, it is it is going to be a challenge. But of course, net zero is purely about energy and sustainability in the built environment is, is wider than that. And we need to look at buildings in a holistic way in order to really become sustainable. And we shouldn't forget the people element of sustainability too. Yeah, and do you think part of that is about maybe people not necessarily wanting or being able to change? So it's the affordability of making businesses more sustainable, certainly the existing ones where big retrofit projects are going to be needed. Um, okay, so I mean, a lot a lot of that will depend on where you're starting and on whether you've already got in a business, already got any measures in place to look at sustainability. But there are quick wins if somebody puts their mind to it that everybody can do, every business can do that necessarily needn't cost the earth. Uh, that's a pun there. Um, <laughs> and in fact, some of them, if it's just a policy change on the way you procure things, you, and if it's things you've got to buy anyway, then there may not be an increase in in, uh, in the um, operational expenditure or the capital expenditure in order to achieve that. Um, and some of that stuff can be really quick and easy and actually prov- provide a payback in terms of not just in terms of carbon, but also in terms of financial terms as well. Yeah. And when we think about sort of the fact that the country might not be able to sort of make net zero as a whole, I guess it's fair to say that those little quick wins that you talked about there that businesses can implement quickly. I mean, it just goes to show that maybe individual businesses could event- could become carbon neutral. And maybe that is something realistic to uh, to aspire towards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, look, uh, if you if you're a business and you're about to build a new head office, uh, and I sincerely hope there are people out there with enough income and business drive at the moment to be able to still move forward. If you're about to build a brand new office, absolutely, you can make that building uh, itself net zero, depending upon your business and the embedded carbon in the way you operate and what you actually do as a business will will determine whether your overall operation can become net zero. And and obviously I can only talk about the construction of the buildings and the operation of the buildings that your business operates out of. And even with some existing buildings, actually, depending on certainly things like logistics sites are very easy to um, diminish the, the impact on the environment. So individual businesses absolutely can become net zero operators of buildings. Uh, but what we need to remember is that there are a lot of very old building stock, and we talk domestic as well as as uh, commercial buildings as well. 
you know, buildings that are like 100, 200, 300 years old, we'll never get those to net zero. And we have to acknowledge that. So there is a possibility if we had a great swathe of new construction that they could over deliver on the energy that they require to feed back into the grid and it can offset some of that. But uh, I think it's a really big ask, certainly by 2030, to be able to mitigate that. Yeah, understandably so. So it, it's kind of clear, isn't it, that it's probably going to take longer. But I suppose in the uh, maybe the 15, 20 years following 20, uh, 2030, I mean, what we could potentially see is um, sort of a lot more businesses demonstrating sustainable construction up to sort of today's standards. And maybe that that will be offset in future. And um, But it's just a case of what we do with that older housing stock, isn't it? Because as you say, I mean, retrofitting all of that, I mean, we're never going to make that 100% efficient, are we? It, it's almost impossible. No, absolutely not. I think it's the responsibility, a collective responsibility to do as much as we personally can. So people in older buildings can reduce the, their amount of emissions, but clearly they'll never get to zero carbon. I mean, obviously embedded carbon, they've already paid back their embedded carbon in a building that's 300 years old on the materials in it. But if we're talking about operational energy and, and uh, you know, we can't go sticking double glazing into heritage graded listed buildings. Uh, and that, that actually is a really important uh, point. Planning currently, put me on a bit of a, a tangent now, planning currently won't allow uh, people within listed buildings to make the alterations that they need, like solar panels, mm. because of the listed building uh, consensus, something that I've recently come up against as I'm as a town councillor as well as a district councillor. The town council in Bishop Stortford is in a very old building, um, which is grade one listed, and, and the council of which I'm also a member, the East Hart, the heritage officer is just flatly refusing to put any measures in that will um, will help offset the carbon on that building. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It isn't straightforward to simply even just go and insulate an old building, is it? I mean, there's always going to be some kind of opposition there. And when you have sort of the uh, the heritage clash, that's um, a big sticking point, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think something that needs to be done with Heritage England and the government needs to really look at what's sensible. So, uh, for instance, the borough of Kensington has done a blanket um a blanket sustainability statement on grade two listed buildings, allowing them to put uh, solar panels on top. But of course, if you look at that, it's rows of uh, Regency and Georgian houses with flat roofs and parapets, so you can't see them. Where if you come to somewhere like East Hearts, where I'm a member, in fact, at the last council meeting, somebody asked this very question about why we couldn't do the same. And of course, we have a lot of thatch buildings, we have a lot of uh, apex roof buildings, and, and it's all visible. And of course, the problem is once you say you can do one thing, it opens it up for people to do a lot more changes to these listed buildings. So it's, it's a, it is a minefield and it needs to be thought about um, carefully in that respect. Mm, absolutely so so with regards to the clashes that we're sort of seeing with obviously heritage especially i mean is it sort of is the onus on ministers and government therefore to kind of bring in legislation to be able to kind of make us go forward in a green way in this area or does that again sort of open another can of worms do you feel uh well i think you know from our previous conversations i'm not a big fan of legislation mm. uh, certainly when it comes to sustainability because people's uh views from different party to different party and actually in the last four months we can see how things change dramatically within the same party with different faces um things change very quickly and it, and it means we don't have a straight route on sustainability 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's certainly in terms of planning powers, government can uh, can certainly look to uh, to do more. Um, but you're right when there is that continuity problem, isn't there? That perhaps when we when we do see sort of different faces in different parties, the route to sustainability isn't a linear one, and that is um, quite a quite a problem. Um, do you think, therefore, while sort of new legislation isn't forthcoming? Maybe businesses and individuals can kind of take a lead on sustainability themselves, but is there a risk to actually going beyond legislation now, do you feel? Um, well, yes, there is, and what's wrong with that? Um, there's nothing wrong in going 100 miles in the right direction if legislation only wants you to travel 10 miles. Um, it doesn't take an academic to understand what we need to do in order to reduce our consumption, in order to be more social. Uh I can't believe there's one business leader in this country that doesn't know the right way to go um, and whatever barriers they have, which are probably procedural, might be effort, could be financial, uh, that's stopping them. They're all barriers that can be overcome. Um, the built environment is a really good example of how industry can take a lead globally on sustainability or any other major issue, like air pollution, for instance, in the way that it set up the World Green Building Council. Now, arguably, you could argue that that was set up as a profit-making business stream for the American Green Building Council and LEED, the environmental assessment method. They were the starters of that of that standard and of that movement. Uh, but every country's come on board. And, and whilst I think it's lost its way a little bit in terms of overcomplicating things and making, making things a little bit too... Uh, onerous than they necessarily need to be over, overall. Um, what they have done is managed to drive a narrative of improvement globally in sustainability that governments now look towards the leading standards like BREAM and like LEED to see what industry is achieving and then setting the regulatory benchmark somewhere near that. And then, then the, the standards then improve their standards over and above that regulation and it forces improvement again. So it's a really good force for good where, where the industry is pushing the governments around the world to actually do the right thing. It is really important. I think you're absolutely right. We should always be looking to uh, to raise standards. And I guess maybe one of the disappointing things is that we're maybe not sort of seeing that on the uh, the planning side so much yet because looking at sort of government legislation as it is at the moment, and I know it's not your, your favourite subject, but it seems to be very much focused more on kind of energy rather than actually the built environment, doesn't it? There's, there's more of a focus on sort of sustainable and um, energy and renewables. That's kind of the main driver of it. Yeah, I think, um, look, you know, carbon and climate change is, is, a, is a sexy topic. It's relatively simple and easy for everybody to understand, which is why politicians like it, because they really need it quite high level. Um, so things like COP27, etc., really focus heavily on energy because it's something that a government can do in terms of changing its infrastructure. But, but you're quite right. Uh, we can have the, I mean, the most energy efficient building is one that's not open, right? So we're better off just building them, not being in them, and then you've got the most energy efficient building in the world. Um, but the fact is, uh, the impacts of a building uh, are on the local environment, uh, are on the global environment, which is where we look at carbon emissions. It's looking at the materials, uh, anti-slavery policies, uh, are they on the uh, endangered species list for things like timber, for instance? Um, and then we look also at things like the indoor environment around volatile organic compounds that can affect human health, daylighting, good air quality, 
the ability to be able to control your environment, you know, it is a huge complex subject and it, and it is subjective to a certain extent. And certainly if you look at, uh, at standards in general, let's go back to Breen because that's where my, my, my journey in sustainability started, which has yeah. informed where I am now, to be honest. And I, and I think Breen's become overcomplicated, by the way, is, um, is that you had like 100 credits and, and, and in order to get to the standard that you require, there were some minimum requirements you had to do that every building had to do, which weren't many of them, but just a couple. Uh, and then the rest of the, of the points that you needed to make up your score were decided by the design team uh, based on several factors. It might be cost, it may be ease of use uh, to achieve, or it could be down to CSR requirements of the client, you know, so, uh, so not to Bream excellent buildings will necessarily look the same, which is good because it's not prescriptive in that way. But um, but it does demonstrate that sustainability and sustainability in buildings and the built environment really needs to be looked at holistically because you can have a super energy efficient building, but, no, but nobody may want to work in it because it's got terrible indoor environments. So, you know, and then your business is, re is diminishing on the performance of its staff. So it starts to lose money in that respect uh, and the efficiency. So it's something that you really need to look at in the whole. Exactly right. So it goes beyond sort of the, um, you know, what, what goes into building the building. It's kind of like how it's sort of maintained internally as well, isn't it? Sort of you could do your specialist in air quality as well. So that's important for reducing, as you say, illness there. So any negative impacts that obviously the building might have, I mean, it's like you can reduce that if you properly plan um, in a sustainable manner, certainly. And that includes not just sort of sustainability in terms of climate change, but sustainability of, you know, sort of well-being, the people that work for you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, sustainable is is a is a very wide term, isn't it? And it's a huge area. I think. I think on a side note, I think the well-being of your staff could be the next asbestos uh, in terms of litigation. If the, the way things are starting to go, I can see. I've already seen a couple of challenges uh, globally on uh, indoor air quality and and uh, staff. Uh, and it could it could widen out. So anything that you do or you you refuse to mitigate could come back to bite you at a later date at some point. Exactly right. So I guess it depends on your starting point, doesn't it, in terms of sort of where your building is at. But I suppose the earlier you think as a business leader of actually bringing in sort of sustainable interventions to your business you're probably going to save out on a lot of costs aren't you because you're going to be keeping your workforce healthy and I guess the sooner the better certainly of course if you're in a new building um, rather than sort of occupying some of the uh, the older stock that we're seeing out there. Yeah I mean I, I think the most important message for anybody listening today is the first thing you should do uh, after listening to this podcast uh, within the next week would be to undertake an audit of your building and see where you are. Um, so obviously you'd need a checklist or, or something to audit against, but you see it certainly need to be looking at the uh, the energy demand on your building, the way the systems are set up, maybe even do a, a, an occupancy survey, and a survey, an anonymous one to see exactly how your staff really feel within the business. And it, it may open up other issues within your business culturally as well that you, that you may not want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but certainly if you keep the questions tight around the environment and the working conditions in terms of the building, you could find out an awful lot about what you need to change. Exactly right. And there's benefits from a commercial perspective as well, isn't there? Because if as a business you're showing that you're sort of 
conscious of sort of environmental, social, corporate governments requirements, um, it's easier to sort of access finance, isn't it, and um, insurance. And obviously uh, with um, the, uh, the pandemic making people a lot more sort of purpose-driven and a lot more sort of conscious of sustainability, for instance, it's going to be easier to attract sort of talent to come and work in your business because priorities of people, they're starting to change, aren't they? And when we're talking a lot about this sort of quiet quitting and the great resignation that we've seen since COVID, a lot of that is from businesses where, you know, their workforce might be thinking, well, maybe they're not considering my well-being and maybe they're not considering, you know, the uh, the greater good, the uh, sort of their impact on the planet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, my generation, I'm 54, uh, I've probably been awakened as a result of what I do. A lot of my f- people, I know my peers who aren't in my industry, maybe aren't so bothered about it at our generation. But certainly the the coming generations who are entering the workplace are more awakened. They are more conscious about their health. They're more conscious about the impacts a business has on the wider environment and whether it gives back and, and what it does to improve society in general as well as the planet. So I think businesses, if they want to attract the best of the best, uh, and have conscientious employees really need to start thinking about this and more importantly how they demonstrate that they're thinking about it and how they communicate it which is where things like third-party verification and certification comes in uh, uh, in order for you to say well we've been checked by somebody else uh, and, and we can demonstrate that we are uh, exemplar and beyond reproach in these areas. Yeah and I guess the sort of sticking point for a business is if you know you go through the auditing process from a third party you're verified and you find that you know maybe you're behind on sort of your uh, your sustainable goals let's say um it's difficult isn't it because the, the choices are very very limited as to what action you can then take moving forward but i guess there is always something that you can do even if you're in that sort of older stock yeah you know uh if you're in existing buildings and you're not looking at a new one be under no illusion I would imagine if nobody's looked at it, nobody's going to score before, nobody listening to this will do an audit and find that they're performing well in all the areas. You may you may be in one uh, if it's something that, that's been, you know, a personal project of somebody in the business. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. The important thing is to know where you are now and, and be able to prove. So look, you know, I'm 54 years of age and I know that I could never beat Usain Bolt in a race, right? It is probably the best 100 metres ever in the world. But I know I could run a little bit quicker than I probably could from sitting on my computer all day. So so it's being able to run your own race. Uh, and, and, you know, you can always communicate good points. So, you know, this is where we were. Uh, and this is what we intend to get to, or this is what we tend to improve. So you can always get good measure out of that in terms of publicity, uh, and especially in time to attract people because you're actually doing something about it. And I think it's the actions and the intent that are probably more important than the end result in in the first instance. So look, if we can get everybody to improve in nationally, both in their homes and in, in and if we just talk about energy, right? Um, both in their homes and in their businesses. If everybody improves by 10 or 15%, we're a darn sight better off than we were before we all started, aren't we, sir? Exactly right. It's a good mentality to have, isn't it? But I suppose the big threat to that is sort of uh, being tarnished with the uh, the greenwashing tag, which seems to be something that's sort of flying around a lot quite often. And uh, it's a shame, isn't it, to see businesses that are essentially getting bashed for trying to do something, even if they can't obviously do it perfectly. Because certainly in the cases of those businesses that occupy those older buildings, as you've talked about, it's not going to be possible to just get absolutely everything spot on, is it? I mean, you're just going to have to do that little 10, 15% that you can. 
Yeah, I think it's important for businesses to be able to demonstrate they're doing the best that they can with the resources and the assets that they've got, okay? Uh, and you know, there always will be uh, some uh, utopian green uh, activists uh, of the kind that stick themselves to roads, you know, that will never feel that it's enough. But I, I kind of, having spent the best part of 15 years in sustainability, I've come to a much more pragmatic view. And I think, uh, you know, it's always better to do something than nothing. Uh, if you can demonstrate that what you're doing is reducing your impact, improving the conditions for the people who work with you, then I think you can hold your head up high. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important because um, essentially sustainability, I mean, it has benefits for everybody. And it's not just, of course, the uh, the planet as a whole and the uh, the carbon goals that we've got, but it is your workforce as well. And I think it's becoming so much more important in the here and now, isn't it? Sort of from the leadership perspective to show that, you know, I've got the well-being of my people in mind, not just in terms of obviously what they feel the purpose of the business should be in the greater good, but also, you know, their own health and well-being because, you know, actually sort of making sure that your building is up to standard. I mean, it, it plays a huge part in that, as we've established. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, I mean, I'm under no illusion that any CEO listening to this is going to look at it from a financial point of view and at the bottom lines. Is it is it prof- profitable or at least not cost negative on the business? If it is cost negative, what are the other benefits that we've got against it? And and for for some CEOs, that may not even be a be a factor. Uh, and I totally understand that. I've worked as a consultant uh, before setting up SUSPLAN. And, and generally speaking, everybody who went for a sustainable building chose the um, credits they were going for in Bream based on cost and nothing else because they wanted the building. But of course they did. They wanted the building built at the best capital expenditure, uh, uh, you know, the least that they could spend, but with the best outcome. And that's totally understandable. Um but I think there are two words that people tend to forget. And if we if we recontext sustainability, uh, it, there are two words at the centre of it that I think uh, it, if we look at the words respect and empathy, now arguably, uh, I'll alienate myself with your audience here, arguably most CEOs aren't best known for their empathy possibly because that's how they have to make very hard business decisions when things get tough uh, uh, and they have to do that whilst keeping a steady head and not going crazy themselves at the fact that they have to do some very unpleasant decisions. But uh, respect for the planet and empathy for the planet, respect for your staff, empathy for your staff, uh, respect for your supply chain, empathy. Those two words, actually, is what sustainability is all about, really. I mean, and, and if we can do that whilst managing and improving our profits, even better. Exactly right. And I think it's important as well to note that when we do see a lot of these um, sort of, you know, sustainable projects in buildings, whether they're existing buildings or new builds, for instance, it doesn't take a huge amount of time to actually see the positive returns. I mean, you might not see it sort of instantaneously, but it is certainly within sort of two to three years, isn't it, that businesses tend to start to see the, uh, the return on it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the average is about two to three years on a sustainable intervention, of course, uh, depending on what you're installing. uh, You know, solar panels could have a slightly longer payback depending upon um, how much you put on there. Um, But certainly in in terms of policies, you can see that payback immediately without with very little outlay um, if we're talking about existing buildings. And if you're building a brand new building, like I say, uh, if you're building a building, you've got to put a roof on it. Well, if you put building integrated photovoltaics, there's your roof and your solar panels all in one, and you've probably only got a 30, 35% uplift on the cost of that. So it doesn't take long for that 30% to be paid back through the energy you generate on that roof. So everything could always have a payback. 
Exactly right. I mean, it's all a matter of time, isn't it, as to how long, obviously, it takes to sort of see the uh, see the return on that. And uh, I suppose we talked about kind of what business leaders and CEOs can really kind of take away in terms of a message from the uh, from the discussion that we've uh, that we've had today. So maybe if we look ahead to the uh, the future in terms of you know where you see the industry going and what you'd sort of like to see from your perspective, being an expert in this, um, we've talked about maybe more legislation not necessarily being the best thing. So is it a case of essentially? you know, business and government continuing to drive each other's standards up in the realm of sustainability? Do you think that's probably the uh, the right way forward? I think governments certainly need to uh, look at continually uh, consider the way in which the country as a whole and globally addresses sustainability. But I think that's background noise uh, to some extent. And I think I would like to see businesses, uh, you know, I mean, we see it with ESG and CSR, uh, certainly businesses becoming more on board. Um, but I want to see them really pushing the agenda and and, uh, and starting to think about the impacts their business has on the world around them and on their staff. And I'm pretty sure, um, you know, that with the right with the right back note, with, with the right procedures in place, you know, these businesses, every business can see an improved performance both in their in their business uh, and in their environmental impacts as well. And and just one point to note, I think uh, certainly when it comes to um, buildings and building new buildings, one of the biggest barriers I've seen over the last 15 years is that uh, fine wall between operational expenditure and capital expenditure and there the two shall meet. And, and being able to have the OPEX guys or, or the OPEX program, if you like, being able to interact with CapEx and say, right, well, we can forward borrow you some money off our operational expenditure to pay for some of these interventions in the fact that we know that it'll pay back and we've just got to pay a little bit more in the short term. Um, that's the most important thing. I think the accountants mm. uh, are, are the ones that are the keys to unlocking this within businesses. Yeah, and it will help businesses essentially all do their part because even if as a country, I mean, it's looking very difficult for us to get towards that net zero target. If every sort of business can, you know, play its own part, make itself carbon neutral or as close to that as possible, it is going to make a uh, massive difference, isn't it? And um, as we sort of uh, move forward into this uh, sort of next year where, you know, energy and all of that is very much on the uh, on the agenda, let's say, and um, we've recently had COP27 as well. Um, what is sort of your kind of ambition for this? Uh, for the sort of next 12 months from the personal point of view, Terence, and what are you hoping to, uh, to achieve with SUSPLAN over that period of time? Uh, well, we've, we're already in a number of councils, draft plans for next year. So it is, you know, I've been in sustainability for a long time and I still run my consultancy. And the reason why I do the other bits that I do is to help uh, the, the transition into SUSPLAN. So SUSPLAN is still very much... Uh, a startup in terms of business maturity, but the the sentiment and the experience behind it is old school, if you like, uh, in terms of a new industry. Um, and so uh, we're in a number of councils, uh, draft plans uh, to be in the planning process, which obviously is where it's embedded. Planners currently don't have any idea really, in most cases, about what they're assessing in terms of sustainability. So be able to give them uh, a framework in which they can can assess what they need to assess to a global standard and a national standard um, then it, it allows it allows people to access sustainability in a much more affordable and easier to understand way than the current standards that are out there 
so yes, of course, I'd like it to grow. Uh, I'd like to probably have about 20 or 30 councils in the next 12 months on board. Um, and the thing to note about the way we work as a business is that 50% of our net profit goes back into uh, charitable grants, uh, either for people to do interventions on their own homes or for people as a bursary to retrain to come into our industry as well to, to, to develop the shortfall, uh, to, sorry, reduce the shortfall in the skills gap in our industry. Mm. Um, and that and that's really what it's about for me. It's making that difference in the world, and that, that's what Susplan's there to do. Exactly right. I mean, it's not just, of course, um, the ability to sort of move industry forward toward kind of net zero targets, but it's also the requisite skills to be able to do it as well. That's something important that you mentioned. And we could do a whole new podcast on that. I'm absolutely certain of it. And it's something we've talked about an awful lot here at the Leaders Council before also. Um, but it's a shame we're just uh, we're just running short of time, uh, Terence, because I could literally um, speak to you all day about this topic. I mean, it is so, so uh, loaded, very, very, very important um, in today's context as well. And actually, you know, I'd love the opportunity opportunities catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back onto the program and hopefully you know there'll be some positive news then to share about where susplan is at and hopefully you know you will have more local authorities on board and we'll maybe be on the way to overhauling that uh, that issue around the planning side of things thanks scott yeah that would be really good and I, and i would also note for anybody listening actually that whilst susplan is focused primarily at um planning authorities there is an ability to actually interact with businesses on a one-to-one basis and actually set up SUSPLAN for them. So when they go to planning authorities or if they're looking at how their building is is operating, then they can actually get a verification from SUSPLAN as well. But as I say, the initial spark was around the planning planning narrative, but I'd absolutely love to come back and uh, that would be really good. I've really enjoyed today. Thanks. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it as well, Terence. It's been really eye-opening and enlightening for myself as well, and I'm sure the listeners do share that sentiment. And if you are tuning in and, you know, anything that we've talked about does particularly resonate with you, I mean, you can reach out to us directly to ask a question or leave a comment on what we've discussed. Um, you can do that via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us. And if you have a question for uh, Terence himself, of course, we'll forward that uh, directly onto uh, him as well. Um, on top of that, if you do have your own opinion to bring directly to the discussion table, on this or any other topical matter or issue that may be of relevance to you in your business um, you can apply to be on our program as well and that will be via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply and you can bring that uh, opinion of yours directly to the discussion table and um, for now it has been an immense pleasure welcoming susplans terence beckett onto today's program and again terence thanks ever so much for your time and i'm sure we'll catch up very soon and to every single one of our listeners tuning in today, I've been your host, Scott Chaloner, on today's episode of the Leaders' Council podcast, talking all things sustainability and planning and the built environment and what businesses can do more with to help us move towards those carbon targets that seem oh so far away. But we can all do our part, can't we? Until next time, all, please do take care and goodbye. We'll be back with a whole new perspective on leadership and current affairs.